Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Ron Merring, Chief Information Security Officer with Texas Health Resources. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. Ron, thanks for joining me. Sure. Happy to be here. Thank you. All right. Great. Looking forward to having a little fun chat with you, Ron. Um, tell me a little bit about your organization and your role. Sure. Um, I work for an organization, healthcare system called Texas Health Resources. We're a um, a large healthcare system located in North Texas. We have roughly about 29,000 employees, about uh, 29 hospitals, and over 300 points of entry into our into our health system. Um, I've been with Texas Health for, gosh, a little bit over 12 years, I guess, and I uh, serve as the Chief Information Security Officer and the Vice President of Technology Operations and Security. I have a bit of a blended role where I lead technology operations and traditional uh, security for the uh, for the health system. Um, I've heard sort of more of this, um, almost like a CISO-CTO blending um, with the infrastructure in there. So I've definitely heard some of this as a trend. Um, you know, and a lot of times, you know, people, you ask people, how, how should this work best from a governance point of view reporting? And what you almost always hear people say is it really doesn't matter. It's just the people have to get along. It doesn't matter who reports to who or who's in which role. Everyone just has to get along and kind of, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think you're dead on accurate. Um, it, it's a cultural issue. Um, you know, um, you can, you know, depending on how the culture is in the how the culture is in the organization, uh, security and technology functions as well as other functions in the enterprise can be there could be unintended uh, uh, conflict that arises out of that. So the the whole idea is to kind of kind of smooth that out a little bit and um, and uh, build. It helps build better relationships and better context of operations uh, when you're trying to figure out what you should do first and what you should do last. What's the priority? What's priority A versus priority D? And when you, all this prioritization and all these costing and budgeting activities and things like that, it's all about choices. And so whether it's the budget side or the operations side, just getting work done, uh, some of these things seem to smooth out. But once again, it does rely on the people and the people have to, uh, agree in principle <laughs> on how you're going to operate. And sometimes the traditional mold works, uh, maybe a separation of duties and uh, some organizations, and there might be incentives to do that. Uh, but in other cases, it's better to be maybe more operationally focused where you have more of a tighter blended relationship. Now, in the end, it is all about relationships and how people get along. Uh, that's how you protect the environment. Um, it's mm -hmm. a team sport. So you can't do, there's no individuals in cybersecurity. It's about the team. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, governance. Uh, as you're talking, you mentioned the word choices. And, you know, we can be the best at executing. But if we're not making the right choices about what to execute on, if that's getting screwed up somewhere along the line, um, then I guess the CEO or someone says, you know, these things aren't lining up. You're not lining up with my priorities or the board's priorities. This, these were the marching orders, but the specific projects where the resources are going isn't lining up. And I wonder, um, is that something that's really hard to get right? Do a lot of people get it wrong? I guess everybody can get it wrong here and there, but um, just your thoughts around governance done well and maybe governance done poorly and where you think the risk lays in getting that wrong. 
Yeah, I, I think the first step is number one, the organization as a whole as a whole needs to recognize that there is governance over IT. And there's a lot of reasons to have that governance that go beyond, let's say, compliance or risk management requirements. It's about all those front end choices, whether or not something should be done in the first place. And uh, we have a really great um, IT governance shop that does a good job of triaging these issues as we intake them and help them uh, repeat that back to the actual requesters, the people who want these new capabilities in the enterprise to help them and inform them from, a, let's say, a technology or an application perspective, if those are good choices or not. And a lot of that might be based on pre-existing solutions that might be able to be extended out, or you know what, you might need a new system, but that new system is going to integrate uh, really well, or there might be a lot of friction in that in that integration. So our, our IT governance structure also includes a pretty deep architectural review board, dives in deep into these requests and evaluates these things on their, their, their merit on whether or not, uh, from a technology standpoint, whether or not these things make sense or not. Of course, the business side of things, whether it's clinical or business operations and healthcare, are going to understand what it's going to do for them. But it helps tie things together a little bit and making sure that the choices being made by those folks that are going to be using the application every day or technology every day, that they have enough information uh, beyond uh, what they see in the workflow that you understand, hey, if you're going to do this, that's great. We understand what you're trying to achieve. But underneath the hood, it might create a bunch of extra churn, extra cost, resource allocation. It might emanate new risks we haven't seen before, depending on how they want to operate. All those things are going to get triaged in a governance process, which helps informs the which helps inform the choice. Mm -hmm. And that's the really big, you need that really good positive feedback loop in these interactions. And once again, let's say people have to recognize there is a governance structure, otherwise it becomes weak and brittle. You get a lot of applications and technologies that kind of kind of work their way past those things and you end up dealing with those things somewhere along the life cycle because maybe they didn't integrate that well or they're bringing in problems that um, are maybe creating new resourcing requirements. And again, anytime you divert resources from someone else to something else in the enterprise that you were that was unexpected, you're probably taking it away from some other service that was already that already existed. So that's really what it comes down to choice. You only have so many IT, almost only so much IT staff. You only have so many, uh, so much budget for for allocating new technologies and applications. It's it's not it's not forever. It's mm -hmm. not a, it's not a, a bottomless uh, pile of money. Uh, so you, that's really what it comes down to. And it's the feedback loop. And once going back to culture, it is a cultural issue. Uh, everyone has to recognize that we're trying to manage this thing. Good stewardship, right? Mm -hmm. We're mm -hmm. trying to manage these things for the right reasons, for the betterment of the healthcare system, and of course, those we serve in the healthcare system, our communities. Good choices. Now, you you mentioned, uh, which you know happens, something sort of sneaking in, and it, it gets past everything, right? Somehow, mm -hmm. this miraculous it, it managed to do it. Um, how does that happen? Uh, and I know there's probably a number of ways. To prevent, we call this shadow IT, right? Gray IT, mm -hmm. things that snuck in. People sometimes have independent budgets that don't sort of go through central. They just put out a credit card or whatever. They have, to, and they got something. Maybe it pops up on the network, and you go, "Oh, what is that? That's interesting." 
Um, obviously, they're supposed to do certain things. You mentioned the architectural review board. It's supposed to go there. Things are supposed to happen a certain way. How do we miss stuff sometimes? How does it slip through? And when something slips through, do you do sort of an analysis and say, ah, that's where it got through. Plug that hole. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, good thing at Texas Health is we we, we have such a, a wonderful leadership population that recognizes the work of other groups and the needs of other groups that it doesn't happen too often. But typically the way this might happen um, definitely in a healthcare system, is you might have a large agreement that covers lots of different product types. Uh, medical device manufacturers are, are a good example of that. We sign these very large agreements. And underneath that agreement, uh, you might have products added to that larger, uh, that larger services agreement. And uh, some folks don't know that, oh, well, we already have an agreement with them, so it's probably okay if I go ahead and add one more thing. And there's nothing nefarious or malicious about it. It's just looking at it for what it is and not realizing that that purchase um, might uh, might need an extra review step uh, because of what actually is being brought in. So those things happen. I don't consider them purposely trying to bypass anything. It's more of a kind of an educational issue, but those things are hard to educate on uh, sometimes. So lots of empathy of folks just trying to do the right thing. We do catch up with those things, and then we put them through a review process when we find them. And then we help folks try and we coach those folks and help them understand, hey, if you're going to add more to this agreement, you you got to let us know. The next thing is a pre-existing solution that maybe they, um, kind of what I was saying before, It's kind of, maybe it's a modular type of solution. Cloud is a good example. It happens with cloud services a lot. You get a, a solution, you buy two modules, and they offer a third module, but you never implemented it, and it was never part of the initial scope, but you did purchase it. You just never did anything with that part of the application, and now you've added more to it. That would typically require another review to be done to ensure what you're doing is appropriate. This happens with on-premise applications occasionally as well, but typically it requires deeper interaction with the internal IT mm -hmm. staff to make those things happen so they're kind of caught. Mm -hmm. But um, those things happen. Once again, these aren't necessarily malicious in nature. It's just getting folks to understand major changes, major um, workload changes, things like that have to communi be communicated back in IT. And our IT shop, our application delivery areas and things like that, actively engage uh, with our with our um, app, uh, with kind of the business stewards uh, to kind of try and discover those new features, new add-ons, new things that they want to do, new interfacing requirements with an application, moving data around, things like that, to ensure that we're all on the same sheet of music. And they maintain these kind of positive interactions. Our major application portfolios are a lot easier uh, just because we have more people around those and the change management practices on those things is a little bit tougher to get through. You can't really bypass those things, but maybe the smaller, lower tier applications might be a little bit easier for folks to add and delete from those environments, um, especially if they're cloud-based, but it's a risk equation, uh, both from a technology risk and a security risk from my vantage point. So we try and catch them along the way. But it is, when we do see them, we do this kind of feedback loop and say, hey, for these type of changes, we need you to kind of enter this um, enter this kind of queue, this governance queue, mm -hmm. so we can take a gander at it. I get questions all the time saying, hey, does this need to go through a review? And I said, yes, you should move that. So the good thing is we do have folks in the, 
in the company that are aware of these things. But you get new people and things like that. They takes a little little time to coach people through that and understand when they trigger a governance request or not. Hopefully, it answers the question. Yeah, it does. I, I was just making myself laugh. I was thinking, <laughs> cloud, cloud, and a credit card is the bane of every CISO's existence. Cloud and a credit card, right? They don't yeah, have, to, have a... to call anybody. It sounds yeah, great. Nice thing. We have pretty pretty rigid controls around all that uh, stuff on purchasing. Uh-huh. The, the controls are fairly rigid right. uh, at Texas Health. We have really great financial and uh, supply chain folks that stay on top of those things quite a bit to make sure that um, folks can't go out there and just charge something. We don't have people running around with credit cards at Texas yeah. Health. Okay, that's good. So we don't have that. Uh, so typically your traditional invoicing, purchase orders and invoicing is required, and that's going to get some type of view. That doesn't mean that we don't have challenges, especially within the distributed kind of varied set of assets we have in a healthcare system. Things can get a little complicated because of the diversity of types of assets, whether it's um, IoT-based services, medical devices, and then you have different types of applications. You have the different modalities of of access going on in, in technology that that can be difficult to manage. So you have to set a line. You have to say, what am I going to worry about? What am I not going to worry about? Right. Uh, you have uh, thousands and thousands of assets. It can be pretty daunting to try and manage every single thing in the enterprise. Uh, so you do have to set a line and say, hey, this is the level we're going to manage at. Well, and that sounds like something you have to do in many areas of life for your sanity, for all of us, right? I mean, right. you know, we talk about, everyone talks about the your job being a job of risk, man, managing risk, measuring risk, communicating risk. Um, and that's what I think of when you talk about that line, right? There, There's lines in risk. You know, what are we going to accept? What are we not going to accept? And you're not making the decision. You're communicating, right? You need to communicate to the business owner, the CEO, the board, whoever is going to the C- whoever's going to make that decision. Here's what's going on. Here's where here's and it's always interesting to me how a CISO describes risk to a business person, how you translate security speak to business speak so you can get a valid answer. So you think the person you talked before about when the businesses are looking at applications, repeating back to them what you think you heard, right? Almost That's like, right. you know, the relationship coaching. They say, if you're having trouble communicating, repeat back. This is what I heard you say. Is this what you said? Um, so lots of stuff there. Uh, I'll let you jump in wherever you want. Well, I would just say is um, you got a great point there. We're a high reliability organization. It's actually a, a real uh, thing. Um, there's principles with high reliability. And when you get into repeat backs, that's all part of that structure. And everyone at Texas Health is coached on and, and trained on uh, high reliability principles. And it allows you to, you're not oversimplifying things. You're focused on uh, resiliency of the enterprise. You're you're deferring to expertise. It's all these principles of high reliability that really make these models work. Um, you can't really skip over those steps. Um, if you skip over those steps, you end up with a lot of friction. If you can build in the front end and the culture of these kind of these principles, I have found that the communication improves the, um, and we have really great promise. We call it our promise. It's our culture, the way we treat each other, respect, integrity, compassion, and excellence. The way we talk to each other, the way we try and understand each other, our, our empathetic, empathetic nature, of understanding that everybody has a job to do and they're just trying to do the right thing for the right reasons, which is our communities that we serve. 
puts might be in a different vibe than some other companies that might have different incentives, although I do believe they're customer oriented and things like that. But the incentives might be a little bit different. So it is incentives and it comes from the top down and, of course, the bottom up. Everybody's got to kind of live that. That's what makes these kind of very complicated and what could feel the onerous processes really work. It's like, why do I have to do all this for one little thing? And um, patience kind of kicks in and understanding that there's a reason why we're doing this. And and just to pull on that a little bit, you can't just do things for the sake of doing it. You have to show results at some point and say, you know, this is the reason why we're doing it. These are the things that we accomplished. Our CIO does a good job, a great job of explaining by doing this work, this extra administrative work. It's making a lot of it's easing the burden and the pain underneath the hood where folks are working heads down every day, just trying to support the customer base, our consumers, um, maintaining systems and those things that go on every day that, you know, the plumbing (laughs) every Mm -hmm. day, it eases the burden there because it's taking away a lot of maybe the, if you had a lot of single point interactions, it could be really burdensome for a lot of different teams. So it, it kind of alleviates that, pulls it away from creates an abstraction layer that folks can interact with it. Doesn't matter if you're a security professional or technology and application person, or even working outside of the core IT structure, working in our data analytics areas, or working inside of our marketing or finance areas. They kind of understand the why behind of it, and you're telling them back. You're you're kind of giving them a feedback loop and saying, yes, it's burdensome, but look at the look at the opportunities that are being created by underneath the hood. We're actually able to accomplish more at scale when you kind of create these structures in a meaningful way. You shouldn't create administrative burden for the sake of creating it. It should have meaning um, and purpose. Uh, but that's what I think the key there. It does go back when we first talked about culture, but there are benefits to all of this if done well. So you use the term a high reliability organization, um, mm-hmm. and I'm not that familiar with that, but it sounds like these are principles about communicating um, values, their values in there. Um, it sounds very interesting. It, and a lot of times when when you when you hear that stuff, the people have to walk around with a little laminated card in their pocket, and you go, <laughs> you know what, these are our values, and they're really high level, and they're kind of, they're not really impactful to me. But it sounds like what what you're talking about is actually informing a lot of the way you're conducting yourself and I assume others, and it creates that culture. That's right. So tell me more about that. Yeah, we don't have folks walking around with uh, laminate cards. Uh, <laughs> not that we haven't that hasn't happened in the past. Occasionally, um, we do have that. Some of the principles, some of the things that you might do underneath the hood, they might have a little cheat list for themselves. But the structure of high reliability, we put it in many years. Since, by the way, in healthcare delivery, it's very popular. Uh, okay. There's many healthcare systems that operate under high, high as a high reliability organization. And they'll, they'll be, if you go to, if they are, they'll be able to say basically the same things I'm saying. And this works at both the point of care when clinicians are, are taking care of patients, they're using these high reliability principles all the way to our back shop areas and our finance and IT and HR areas, the way we communicate, and sometimes it's the simplest things. And uh, things like the way we communicate decisions, we use what's called a 
which many organizations do something similar. They have a, a standard template we use for communicating or requesting a decision, essentially, or expressing a problem. And it's called an SBAR, it's Situation Background Assessment and Recommendation. Not uncommon. I've heard but that. No matter yeah. where you go in the enterprise, you can see people doing these things. And it provides a structured way to communicate, right? That way, it's not some free-form email with people kind of talking through a problem, kind of in a... Um, it's all, you know, you get an email, you get a request, and they can kind of come in a lot of different ways with yeah. the way the person feels about the problem in many ways. This gives a logical structure to work through to say, here are the, the four things I need to go through to explain this problem properly and develop a kind of an appropriate, what I believe the recommendation to be. Uh, those very simple things, if not done right, can actually create a lot of downstream problems because immediately you find out you had communication problems. It helps it helps build the front end to the communication path. Right. But it's also the other principles as well inside of high reliability. One of my favorite is deference to expertise. And that just find let the subject matter experts do what subject matter experts do. Don't get in their way. Listen to them. Let them provide the right feedback. You're probably going to solve problems a heck of a lot. Uh, easier. That means going, not going, it's not a chain of command. It's not going, oh, I have a bunch of directors that report to me. They must be my def. That's where I'm going to go to my deference of expertise. Nope. Uh, we go all the way down to the engineering or the analyst level to find out exactly what's going on and realize because that chain of command can create its own set of problems, right? An own set of biases and things like that because uh, the way things work, it's a human nature thing. So deference to expertise in practice, okay, in practice is not an easy thing to accomplish. And you have to build that all the way on the front end. So number one, you got to recruit the right people, okay, uh, with the right frame of mind, the right, the ability to consume uh, these cultural uh, behaviors that we expect. So you got to recruit well. And then when they're in, you've got to live it. You can't just treat it as a kind of a, you know, uh, I'm going to put it on the end of my signature line in the email. It can't be that way or a <laughs> laminate card. It's you've got to kind of show it every day. And what it does, it builds up where people are not afraid to say something. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're, they feel like that they're part of the solution. Their input is truly valued. And we can see that all the way from the CEO on down. The CEO goes right to the people that can answer questions, okay? He knows that he understands the hierarchy and the organizational chart better than anyone, more than likely. And he um, it starts from the CEO on down. And then once again, it goes from the bottom up, from the lowest level employee in the organization understands these principles at, at their base level and can apply those. And that's really where things begin to work. So it's really, you've got to live it every day. If you don't, these things could become more of a byline or a- Yeah, uh, laminated card. Some things that we say we do on a website, but you got to live it. It, it sounds like uh, you really embrace this philosophy and it works for you. And you like the effects of this in the workplace. Is that accurate? Oh, it does, very much so. Uh, my primary role and the work I do primarily, primarily every day is serve as a CISO. I have other duties, but I serve as a CISO. This a CI, a cybersecurity program is not effective without these principles, plain and simple. You can see, you can go to any, worked in different organizations and you can see the constraints, the friction, 
uh, the issues that arise when these uh, from those companies where they're they're having difficulty getting adoption or getting folks to kind of carry forward with the plan. You can kind of see these things emanate because they're not really applying these kind of more holistic principles within the organization. And you don't have to call it reliability. It's, you know, just by you can call it other things. Uh, the big thing is just involving realizing that definitely in the cybersecurity side that, look, this is a this is a team sport. The only way you can get everybody involved, everyone's got to f- see and feel that problem statement and feel like they have influence in there. And listening is important and all those things. One of my other favorite ones is uh, basically it's summarized. It's don't oversimplify. So building structures where um, you're not sitting at kind of this very high level of of evaluating a problem is actually listening to the signals and actually what is happening in the environment. And you can apply this to technology as well. Sensing that these small events, these small issues could become bigger issues. And you can't do that just by telling people to do it. You kind of actually have to have structure and rhythm around sensing these small events, these small signals um, in the environment to say, hey, is this a bigger problem or not? And that's, once again, you involve your subject matter experts and your deference to expertise, and you get good dialogue and conversation going on what's appropriate uh, to do next in those steps. So just some examples of how to apply it and how we've applied it at Texas Health. It works. And yes, I'm very, I uh, love working in an environment that that provides that type of culture because it makes things a heck of a lot easier. And by the way, more enjoyable every day. <laughs> very good. So you you mentioned that you have to model it yourself. And in order for it to be real and sustained, you have to address it where you do not see it applied by those who are under you, so to speak, report to you and whatnot. Can you give me an example of how that might happen? Perhaps something you might see that you would say this is not exempt. This is not uh, working with the values we're supposed to be espousing. I'm going to coach. This is a coaching moment. This is a teachable moment. Does that? Yeah. I, I assume that comes up. It, it does. You might have folks that um, it. It's not like we're conflict free. It's not that we're constraint free. Um, there's going to be roadblocks the way and that can frustrate people. Mm -hmm. Um, The big thing about that is if folks are not living with their values, I wouldn't necessarily call it, it's kind of a coaching moment, but it's more about drawing them back in Uh to the actual behavior itself. And that comes down to appropriate questioning techniques, appropriate, hey, what are you really thinking here? Explain this and let them kind of, the individual lay it all out and um, express themselves, their voice. Um, And um, I find that that helps get people into the right frame of mind. You can get into comp, people could be really burdened that week. They're really busy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these things are not top of mind. It happens. People are heads down, working really hard, uh, trying to do the right thing. And sometimes you just have to slow down the conversation a little bit and make sure everybody synchronizes back to what is the proposed problem statement, if it even exists, because it might not actually be an appropriate problem statement yet, right? Mm. The problem may have not been fully identified. It just feels like a problem. Right. So you have to walk people through, and that could be creating this frustration, that could be creating uh, folks that might be um, acting not within our cultural structure, and you just have to say, you know, that's just not kind of the way we work here. I believe in being 
honest with folks when you need to be very well, always honest with folks, but to be more, I said, uh, in the delivery of that message to make sure that it's more uh, of a fluid conversation and a back and forth and not just you're doing it wrong. Because uh, you got to get that adoption back. So it does happen occasionally, but the key is is to uh, pull on the thread a little bit more. And we get, and especially in the cybersecurity space, they're all complicated projects. You're going to enter. You're going to interact mm-hmm. with different systems. Folks might not understand how that interaction will work. So you've got to bring people into the problem statement and solution together. I find that that works pretty well, but. And we we run across those issues. Very complex projects, some of the most complex I've ever worked on. And you're trying to get folks to see things a little bit differently, but then stay within our within our high reliability kind of promise behavior model, making sure we're applying those to every meeting and every interaction. If things aren't going well, sometimes it's best just to say stop. <laughs> I always say, mm-hmm. hang on a minute, we're going to stop right here and let's talk about this and backtrack. And sometimes you have to go back a little ways and go back to the original problem statement or the original issue and say, let's start over again and try this again. And you have to be patient with these things. They're all, everyone's a human and they have their own perspective and view of the world. And you've got to recognize that. So we don't have like some kind of um, draconian, you shall, right? <laughs> promise delivery here, promise culture. It's just kind of expected that you kind of live this every day with the understanding that no one's going to be perfect every day and you have to recognize it. And you mentioned the importance of hiring. Um, I would imagine Mm. if this is the kind of organization we want to have, these are the things we believe we're going to really try and do our best to make sure before we bring someone to the organization, they are open to these things. They embrace these things because you don't want the kind of person to come in that it, this is completely foreign to anything they're interested in doing, and it's just not going to work. That's true. Uh, there's some of the there's some really bright and skilled people in the kind of marketplace of people. Of cyber it doesn't mean especially. they're a good fit. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean they're a great fit. Yeah. Okay, so uh, it really comes down to that initial recruiting and engagement that the recruiters do, and then the subsequent interviews of the uh, supervisor, the hiring manager, to ensure that when they're asking these questions, they're soliciting um, responses that meet uh, our needs, that they're going to be a good fit, that they're going to get along with what we're trying to do at Texas Health. So, And we have training for our hiring managers. We've done that in the past to ensure that we're evaluating all of our um, candidates in the correct way, the way we believe they should be evaluated so it'll be a good fit. Um, across all the guidelines you would expect in a recruiting process, recognizing not only the, the skills of the individual, but recognizing that everyone's different, diversity does count, all those things matter um, in the structure, making sure the, recruit, the recruiting population pool is appropriate and that we're gathering the right candidates into the pool with the right population. Those things are all done on the front end, but they set up the hire of a, of a, of a, great, um, of a great employee. Yeah, it makes me think, I'm not going to keep you too much longer. Um, it makes me think of the importance of the re- relationship between the business and the business units and HR I've worked in different places where it felt like there was a bit of a disconnect uh, between HR and the units, meaning it just wasn't that much, a, a partnership that you'd want. You, you'd get candidates and resumes that were not even close to what you were looking for. It just didn't feel like well ingrained. But what you're talking about 
And I think the ideal state would be for HR to really understand the culture, the people, not just the skills, but also the skills, but to, for them to really, really get it at meeting of the minds with the business. That's right. It's really important to have a good relationship with the different parts of HR that make that successful. At Texas Health, which is awesome, we within IT, we're a fairly large department. We're 700 people, significantly large, a good size IT department. So we have a dedicated, uh, well, I think she covers a few other areas, but uh, a dedicated HR uh, 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 individual who helps guide us through this structure. And if things aren't necessarily working well in the queue and the recruiting queues, she helps with that, uh, with the recruiter. She helps bridge those uh, relationships. Now, the hiring managers are working directly with our recruiting managers and, and for the candidate population and making sure we have good job requisitions and all that stuff out there. Occasionally, you do have candidates that pop in that fall below the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and just probably sh- maybe should not have ended up in that queue, maybe. Uh, but the key is to have a good relationship with the recruiter and say, look, I and say, I don't mind if you put these type of candidates in the queue, I, I will review them. Or I want you to go ahead and stop these type of candidates with these. If they don't have these skills, I don't want to see them. And that's that right. communication up in front with the recruiter saying, this is what I need and what I expect to kind of land in my queue. Right. Yeah, definitely. You don't want... <laughs> You don't want to be wasting your time. You don't want to be sitting there interviewing right. people that for one of many reasons are completely, you know, within five seconds, you say, this isn't going to work out. Now I've got to kind of pretend to finish this interview. So I'm not rude anyway. Yeah. Right? And I always say when, you know, I, I tell that uh, I've told hiring managers this in the past, I says, you know, when you're recruiting somebody, remember that's maybe day to day for you, but that's an important part of that person's life that you're recruiting. Yeah. So go in yeah. that with that headspace. And not I'm not saying all candidates might have that attitude. They might be doing a hundred different interviews and it's just one more for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, treat it as uh, this candidate has taken the time to uh, say, hey, you know what? I kind of like to work at Texas Health and that they're taking time out of their schedule to, uh, you know, interview and and try and become part of this great team that we have here. So I as I go in there with that kind of attitude and realize that it's, you know, that this person is taking part of their day out and they want to be part of our team. Um, regardless, and the qualifications set aside, just take that very human characteristic of, of realizing this is a human being on the other side. It's not just uh, not just interviewing somebody like a check in the box for the day, treated for what it is. That's another human being that wants a job. You sound like a very pleasant to, person to work for, Ron. I might, I might send in an application if this call. Um, final. It question. varies day to day, by the way. You have to catch okay. me the right day. I, I, caught you, I caught you on a good day. Um, final question, then I'll let you go. Twelve years, uh, certainly, probably about three times longer than the average CISO tenure, um, give or take. But uh, lots of experience there. One place. Uh, your mm-hmm. best piece of advice to others in the role, many of whom we'll have, again, about uh, one-third or one-fourth of the time on the job. Your best piece of advice for them? Uh, for CISOs. Yes, for CISOs. Stick with the company. Yep. There will be ups and downs, oh. but regardless of how you might feel you're being treated, you still have a job to do and do it the best you possibly can and understand that not everything that one day, that may be that one week or that one day or that one month, which may have been a bad week or month, is going to be the worst month. 
Okay. And that, in other words, things can get better. Okay. Stick with the company, understand you're there for a reason and just stick with it because most cybersecurity programs, I'm talking from a cyber perspective Mm -hmm. here, are not a one, two or a three year body of work. Uh, They are, to be very honest, from my vantage point, they're a five to 10 year body of work. Wow. And you have to think in long range terms about how I'm going to help this organization out that hired me. And I wanted to be a part of. Now, sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes relationship issues occur, and maybe it's not appropriate to stick with the company. But if you can stick with them, because it's going to help you and your program, and it's going to help the company out. So I found that that works. So that's my biggest thing: is stick with the company and be there. Be honest with your leaders about the real posture of your company, the real challenges. Uh, don't sugarcoat things. Uh, be honest, be respectful, all those things, and say exactly where they are, and get them to uh, and get those folks to understand what risks they're consuming by maybe doing something or not doing something in the enterprise. That's our job, and it's a hard job. And realize if you signed up to make like all of a sudden things were going to be magically easy, you are absolutely wrong. It's it's a tough job to do, like other jobs in in large companies, but um, you're not the only one with challenges. Stick with them, and you'll make it better for for the company and and the consumers or customers that they serve. I don't know, Ron. Stick stick with it. Finish the job. Sounds like you're Marine coming out. You're inner Marine. That's right. Twenty one years ago, I stuck with it. <laughs> well, yeah. For those who don't know, you were in the Marines for twenty one years. So thank you for your service, and uh, that's it. Stick with it. Finish the finish the mission. Right. That's right. All right, Ron. Thanks so much for your time today. You bet. Great. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate you. Have a a great day.